Welcome to Critical Value, the podcast from the Urban Institute that explores issues of significance for research, policy, and people. I'm your host, Justin Milner. The experience of poverty can be devastating, affecting health, life expectancy, and many aspects of overall well-being. It's also incredibly common in the U.S. Around one-fifth of children live in families with incomes below the federal poverty level, and nearly 40% of Americans between the ages of 25 and 60 will experience at least one year of poverty. So what would it take to dramatically increase mobility from poverty? It's a bold question and one that a diverse group of experts staffed and supported by the Urban Institute spent two years exploring. The U.S. Partnership on Mobility from Poverty is a coalition of 24 of the country's leading thinkers on economic mobility. It's a promising model for tackling big, seemingly intractable policy questions. Today, our guest is Nisha Patel, the partnership's executive director. We'll talk about how the partnership developed a holistic definition of mobility and a set of interconnected strategies that are now publicly available. A lot of your recent work lately has been focused on a single really important question. What would it take to dramatically increase mobility from poverty? What are we learning about some of the factors that inhibit mobility? If you ask most people, what's the American dream? They'll typically say one of two things. They will say that it's this idea, if you work hard, you should be able to get ahead. Or even if you yourself are struggling, there's this idea that, you know, maybe your, your children, the next generation, should have a chance to at least do a little bit better. And so if that's the dream, what's the reality? So it turns out today, children are much less likely to do better than their parents than they once were. So when we look at data from 1940, what we see is that in children that were born in 1940, 90% of those children, by the time they got to be adults, earned more money than their parents. If you fast forward to 1980 and you look at the same data, so you look at children born in 1980, and by the time they got to be adults, only 50% of them earned more money than their parents. So that's a huge drop from 90% almost everyone to only about half. And you might expect about half people to do better, right? That's essentially stagnant mobility. And so that's a that's a huge challenge. And certainly income is only one factor. And it's a dramatic change from what had been the trajectory of pretty much most of American history up until recently. That's right. So that's one one factor, and that's something that's changed um, in the last several decades. And then second, you know, this idea, so if you work hard, you should be able to get ahead. And so there are a bunch of different points, data points we could look at here. But one that I often like to lift up because I think it's really powerful is data from the National Income Housing Coalition. And so they look at if you're a full-time minimum wage worker, can you afford housing? And what they find is that in no state, in no jurisdiction in the U.S., can a full-time minimum wage worker afford a modest two-bedroom apartment, right? And they calculate that by 30% of your income. In no state. In no state. So hard work isn't enough. And then third is this factor around place, how much place matters, or the way we have often talked about it in our work is how much zip code matters for, for your destiny right now, right? None of us control where we're born, but it turns out it can make a huge difference in later outcomes in life. What are the opportunities available in the community that you grow up in? Fourth, we, we continue to have these persistent disparities by race, by gender, and by immigration status. And so when you look at who's doing low-wage work, we calculated that by less than $12.50 an hour. 
What you see that is that while only 20% of white men are in low-wage jobs, the majority of people in low-wage jobs are actually women. So many more women are working in low-wage jobs. And then when we layer on race and ethnicity, what you see is that about 40% of black women are working in low-wage jobs and over 46% of Latina women. And then we looked at it at another level and we said, well, let's look at immigration status. And when we look, we layer that on top of race, ethnicity, and gender, what you see is that over 60% of Latino women who are non-citizens, which includes people who are legal permanent residents, are working low-wage jobs. So that's three times as, as many um, as white men. So that is just something that continues to persist. And then fifth is this issue that I think doesn't get talked about as much, but is the stigma and the isolation that go along with poverty in the U.S., which is a real barrier to progress. And we looked at one study where the researchers asked the people in the study questions about their their beliefs about people who were poor and people who were middle class. And what they found is some really stark differences across a range of attributes. So people in poverty were far more likely to be seen as dirty, as unpleasant, and as violent, and far less likely than people who are perceived as middle class to be seen as responsible, as family-oriented, and as hardworking. Mm. So that's a lot to sort of overcome. And why that becomes important is, right, the reasons that we believe we have poverty or people living in poverty are what shape our decisions about what policies to invest in, what programs to invest in, who is viewed as deserving or undeserving of support. And when I think about some of those factors that you outline, like place matters and how certain groups do not have this access to mobility or, or have deeper rates of poverty, it, it seems like there is a concentration. Is that true that there's this concentration of some of these factors and it makes it particularly hard for people either from particular backgrounds or in particular places to get ahead? That's right. I mean, you can look at concentrations of poverty, particularly in some urban neighborhoods, but you can also look at this idea of persistent poverty. And I think that becomes really important when you look at rural areas. And so you can look at maps of where there has been persistent poverty over decades, and it really hasn't shifted. And what does that geography of poverty look like? You know, you, if you can imagine a map of the United States, um, and if you kind of zoom in on the southeastern United States, that is a place in the country where we, that I think doesn't get enough attention policy-wise from both public investment, but also philanthropic investment. So you can look at the Deep South, the Mississippi Delta, and you can see persistent poverty there. You can see similar things if you look at Appalachia, if you look at the, the region along the border with Mexico, look at Indian country. You can look at reservation areas in the United States where there are concentrations of Native Americans, and you see that same kind of persistent poverty. So you've served as the executive director of the U.S. Partnership on Mobility from Poverty for the last year plus. Can you talk about the goals of that project? Sure. Yeah. You know, as you mentioned, we had sort of one task and it was answer one big bull question. What would it take to dramatically increase mobility from poverty? So the, the task was develop ideas in response to this question that could really make a difference with government at all levels and philanthropy as the key audiences, as the potential investors in the ideas, but always keeping in mind that direct service organizations on the ground, advocates, organizers, researchers will be key to actually moving the ideas forward. So the implementers of the ideas. So what are a couple of the main insights that you would raise up? There were two big ones I would lift up. The first would be our definition of mobility, and then the second would be these five interlocking strategies that we've developed. 
And what is the definition of mobility and how did that change as the work evolved? You know, the definition of mobility actually emerged at the very beginning when we talked about what would success look like. I think what's really different about our definition is that it's more than just economic success. So we have three core principles. The first is economic success. The second is around power and autonomy. And then the third is around being valued in community. And then you mentioned the strategies. What are some of the strategies that you guys have raised up or found to be really important in this work around mobility? So we, you know, what's interesting is we kind of let all ideas develop kind of organically. And so we didn't set a frame at the beginning. So we looked at all the ideas and said, well, how might these come together? And then sort of what we identified five big strategies that sort of frame up all of the ideas. So the first is changing the narrative, changing the narrative around how we talk about poverty and people in poverty. Second, creating access to good jobs. Third, you know, and these are in some ways aspirations, ensuring zip code isn't destiny. Fourth, providing support that empowers. And fifth, transforming data use. And that idea of providing support that empowers, that's really compelling. Yeah. So when you look at the way we provide support to people in poverty today, people who are, you know, striving for a better life for themselves and and often for their children, we have no shortage of number of programs that do that. But we very often provide that support in a way that doesn't offer dignity and respect, that doesn't help people empower themselves. And so the aspiration is that these programs, really building on our definition of mobility, would put people and families at the center, allow them to set their own goals and work work across different domains. So not focusing just on employment and training, but coupling that with focusing on education, focusing on housing and family stability focusing on um, financial education, focusing on health and well-being, because it's not just one thing, much like the five strategies, right, that's going to help people really on onto a pathway out of poverty. And so places that were doing that well would be really thinking about the needs of their clients across these different areas and how it might play out both in workforce strategies and in child care supports, that sort of thing. Would be, yeah, would be thinking about needs, but also opportunities. And so one of the things that often I think um, can be a real blind spot in program and policy is not recognizing the strength, the resilience, the capability that people bring to the table. And so there's often this, this deficit model. And so how do you meet need, but also understand people's, you know, not just their dreams and their goals, but the capability that they bring to the table. Another strategy you mentioned was around transforming data use. One example that I often like to use that was really important in our work is that we looked at research, but we, as importantly, looked at practice and spent a bunch of time in communities on the ground, 30 plus site visits where we spoke not just to people running programs, but to people experiencing poverty. And that was really, really important in our work. And on one of our partnership site visits to Baltimore, the folks on that state visit had a chance to meet with the health commissioner in Baltimore. And I think I, I like to share this example because I think often, sometimes when I hear data, even though I work at the Urban Institute, my eyes can kind of glaze over. And so on this the site visit, Dr. Alina Wen, who's the commissioner of health in Baltimore, was talking about their work. She said, and this is actually a quote from her that I'd like to read because I think it's actually more powerful in her voice mm-hmm. than it is in mine. So she said, as part of child fatality review, department heads in Baltimore city government get together once a month. We review every child death that happened in the city since the previous meeting. We ask what more might have been done to prevent that tragedy. 
In many cases, each of us has a file on the child or the family at least an inch thick. It's tragic to compare notes after a child has died. What more could have been done when the child was alive? And I think what that powerfully illustrates, right, is is the lack of matching data across systems that we have. And so how do we address that challenge? And so there's sort of a few things that we're looking at, and we've actually put forward a proposal around this. The biggest first part of it is investing in promising solutions at the state and local level. And then second, supporting data centers that can match data across these different systems, but also protect privacy, which is super important. And then third, creating some data infrastructure standards that maybe could be scaled across the country. So that's so important. It puts a real human face on this idea of data integration and things that can be very dry, but have real impacts for real people. You've talked about some places where you would like to see this work take hold. Are there places that are really good examples at the state level, at the local level, in which some of this support for mobility is actually taking hold? You know, it's a great question. I don't think there's there's no one community that I would point to that where I would say all of these elements are happening at the same level. I think one of the important reflections I have, not just on this work, but sort of the 20 years that I've been, this has sort of been my professional and and personal mission working on these issues, is that innovation doesn't only happen in, you know, urban areas. It doesn't only happen on coasts, which I think those are often the first places that people look. But really spending time in urban, rural, suburban, tribal communities across the country, you see pockets of promise everywhere. When I look at something like this idea of providing support that empowers, there are a number of emerging models around the country that are sort of using knowledge that we didn't have 20 years ago, the best, most cutting edge knowledge around behavioral and brain science. And so I look at an organization like the one run by Beth Babcock, who is part of the partnership, Economic Mobility Pathways. They have a network of, actually a global network of organizations that are using tools that are based in brain science and really shifting to a model of rather than top-down case management, much more of a model where coaches and navigators work with families, helping them to set their own goals and work with them over the long term to move toward those goals. And again, whether those goals are around employment, around increasing their education and skills training, improving their housing situation. And a number of programs are starting to take much more even of an intergenerational approach. And so that there, when there are families, there are goals for parents and also goals for the children. So under the guise of the U.S. partnership, how did you guys go about your work? You know, that's one of the things I think that has been so powerful about this work. What we developed is important, but how we went about it was was just as important. And one of the things that, you know, in addition to not being a consensus group, one of the things I think was really different was that, you know, we didn't just rely on data and evidence. Data and evidence are super important, and we spent a lot of time on that. But equally important was looking at practice and talking to people on the ground and particularly weaving in the perspectives of people experiencing poverty. And I think that is often a blind spot for policy and for philanthropy, right? The people who are actually closest to the problem sometimes are closest to the solutions. Are there any examples of conversations that you had or experiences that the group underwent that really shine through? Yeah, you know, we were talking earlier about the geography of poverty, right? And we can look at places in the country that historically have high or low economic mobility. And so one of the places in the country that has historically high economic mobility for children born into poverty is the Silicon Valley area. So we very intentionally 
went there to, to understand that particular context, much like we spent time in the Delta, which is sort of the opposite pole. But we were in East San Jose in the in the Mayfair neighborhood, which is actually the, the neighborhood where Cesar Chavez began his organizing. And we were there for the day talking with families in the neighborhood. And you know, we kept talking about here we are being in Silicon Valley and we were having a conversation in simultaneous Spanish English interpretation. And what we heard from families is that in that community today, it can cost $600 to rent a couch, can cost $1,000, $600 a month to rent a couch, $1,000 a month to rent a garage. And so think about if you're working really hard and you're in a low-wage job, how, how is that possibly going to be affordable? But then in the course of the conversation, again, we're having this conversation in English and Spanish. We're talking about being in Silicon Valley. One of the women stopped us and she asked us in Spanish, you know, what is this word you keep using? What is Silicon Valley? And I think that so powerfully illustrates both the economic and cultural divide in that in that region where it's really extreme, but I think you could see parallels across the country. And it illustrates the importance of not just looking at the data. So often there can be a lag in the data, but actually talking to people real time about their experiences and coupling those stories with the data to really understand mobility, but then to also begin to understand what it would take to get to solutions. What would you say to people that are maybe skeptical about the need for interventions and supports in communities and for government to promote mobility and opportunity in a more proactive way? There's both a moral or philosophical argument for why to invest in fighting poverty, but there's also an economic argument. So I'll start with the the philosophical front, right? I think this really speaks to what kind of society do we want to live in? Do we want a country that lives up to the ideals that everyone who's willing to work ought to have a chance to make it? Like, do, do we still believe in the American dream? Do we want an opportunity for all or just for some? You know, relatedly, do we see children in the U.S. as all of our children for whom we have collective responsibility? Do we see each other's humanity? Do we see, do we believe all people are deserving of the opportunity to live with dignity and respect and be valued in community? So if the answer is yes, I think that is the the philosophical or moral argument for why. But even for people who don't believe that, I think if you know, you can look at um, on the economic front. We know that income inequality is one of the biggest drivers of decreased productivity. So if it, you know, if we're tapping the full potential of all people, it's likely we would see greater productivity growth in the U.S., and that would bolster the nation's ability to compete globally. So to the extent that's a motivator for why, I think investing in fighting poverty is a great investment in the United States economic future. Nisha, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. Thanks for having me. As always, we'll close with some key takeaways. Here are three things you need to know. One, for many people, the American dream is just that, a dream. Mobility from poverty today is roughly stagnant. While 90% of children who were born in 1940 earned more money than their parents by the time they reached adulthood, now only 50% of children born around 1980 will earn more than their parents. Two, to fight poverty, we have to change the narrative around it. Our beliefs about poverty and people living in poverty shape the policy decisions we make and impact economic mobility. And three, effective anti-poverty policies don't just fulfill basic needs. They also recognize the strength, resilience, and abilities that all people bring to the table. Thanks again to Nisha Patel. 
You can find more about her work and the U.S. Partnership on Mobility from Poverty at www.mobilitypartnership.org. And if you like the show, please subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take a few seconds to give a rating, and if you're feeling especially generous, a review through your podcast app. Thanks to our editor, Riley Byrne, our producer, Yvonne Powers, and to Vicki Gann, Katie Smith, and Lionel Foster for all their help. Our theme music is by Moby. For everyone on the Critical Value team, this is Justin Milner signing off. <laughs>